Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Right to Read initiative. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Tim Odegaard today, and we are discussing the difficulty with change. The Right to Read initiative started when the Ontario Human Rights Commission released their public inquiry into the Right to Read, and it came out with a report filled with 157 different recommendations on how to improve best practices for reading. Now, this isn't the first report of its kind. And what it means is that we know how to do things in a better way to help our students learn how to read. But the question is, how can we make these changes in an, a meaningful way with realistic expectations. Uh, we have amazing parent advocacy groups out there that have been advocating for screening and changing to better practices. There are great groups available uh, online trying to have that impetus for change. But as much as we want it to be a dream world where we can just snap fingers and we have screening and responsive teaching in place, there are things that have to be in ready to support the change. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Odegaard. Do you want to give people a little bit of a background of who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm Tim Odegaard. So I'm a professor of psychology. I was trained as a psychological scientist, um, specifically with development and um, I transitioned into neuroscience with brain imaging. Um, my research is in is in many different areas, but right now it's really at this intersection between policy and how it's being implemented and kind of the ramifications of student learning outcomes, working with um, one of the states who, in the United States, that passed a Right to Reef initiative that was based off of an earlier dyslexia piece of legislation, and now working with a couple of other states to try to understand from large public warehouses of data kind of what the impact of these changes are and where some of the obstacles are and who's kind of benefiting and not from these initiatives. So that's what my, my research has kind of morphed into is really this intersection between what the policy is really translating into practice and using some of the pieces that the legislative put into place as far as data warehousing of uh, especially the universal screening data in a couple of the states across the United States um, is where I'm at. I serve as the editor-in-chief of Annals of Dyslexia, um, and then I'm also a consulting editor for the Journal of Learning Disabilities, and I run the efforts of the Tennessee Center for the Study and Treatment of Dyslexia. So we're a small little center here in Tennessee, and our primary mission is to be a direct service in translating research into practice for the betterment of students, teachers, and parents K-12 through in the state of Tennessee. And some of your listeners may know that we try to provide um, open access resources, such as our expert minute videos, like Anita Archer's or Nancy Hennessy's on structured literacy or mine on dyslexia, try to produce some infographics and info sheets, try to have some model lesson frames, some rubrics and guidelines for how we might go about identifying struggling readers. Um, and then we also provide various forms of professional development. And all of this is built off of the fact that we're an active research institution that is actively engaged in research. And so we're staying in both worlds in that way. So I didn't do my last time we chatted kind of a, a really deeper dive into who I am professionally. Um, and then personally, I'm just a person who's a human being. I'm a working dad. I have a child with dyslexia. I myself struggle to learn how to read. So did my sister. And so I know from the firsthand experience, the right that can be denied you when there aren't proper 
pieces of legislation that acknowledge who you are and the realities of how we identify us, when there's legislation that doesn't really work to get into the classrooms to actually benefit us, and then the frustrations of being a parent when you know not much is seeming to have changed from that perspective in the since I was just an eight-year-old being misidentified and mislabeled and not getting the help I need because of antiquated ways of identification. Of course. And I think when you have that personal connection to it as an individual and a parent being in the same boat, it the, the desire for change is this that much deeper. But then also the perspective that it's not as easy as some people think, understanding it from the academic side of things. Um, you've done a lot of research in schools, and I'm sure your experience is similar to others where we can design these amazing programs and packages of um, curriculum and best practices for teaching and when research assistants go in and do it with students or a controlled sample, then you get these amazing results. But as soon as we have it going into the classroom, there's a disconnect because teachers don't have the same preparation, background knowledge, and experience with the program that we're using. So it's difficult to have that successful transition. Yeah, and I would go one step further on the ecosystem of leadership. So in the United States, we have the Institutes of Educational Science, which is the research arm of our Department of Education. Within that, when it comes to instructional research, we have different goals. Um, one of those goals is the goal two. That is to show that a program will work. The researchers get all of the resources and they control what happens in the schools. We can see great effect sizes, great impacts on the student learning. When Jenny Wanzak and Sharon Vaughn did a meta-analysis of some of the intervention and instructional research. They noticed that we went to goal three and we had the schools take over and the researchers just went in to observe what was happening, but couldn't come in and train the people, pay the teachers. Then they noticed it went down. Well, one of the things that we don't always acknowledge is when you hire people, they report directly to you. They're accountable to you. So when we send in research assistants or we hire retired teachers or new teachers and we train them as research investigators, we're controlling them completely. They do what we do. They're not school employees. So that means leadership can't co-opt them and pull them out of the positions or put in different pieces too. So we often don't acknowledge that above teachers are people who might be misdirecting them or not allowing them to have a context to be successful in the first place. Um, when I was running randomized control trials in the United States, when I was working in a different setting, I had to remove some of our sites because the administrators weren't allowing them to. And I was tracking the teacher's attendance to the classrooms because I was well aware of what can happen in a school setting. We go in to run a study. They're not our people. They're being pulled to do their jobs as seen by their person, the principal of the building or the AP of the building, and not necessarily what I think their job is, which is to get in there and run these small group intervention studies in a randomized controlled trial with enough observations to do it. So some sites were ineligible because they only met with their kids five times out of an entire semester. That is not a test of an intervention. That's not an test of an instructional practice. That's the test of, can you keep a teacher in a classroom with your resources or your understanding of how you allocate those resources? So often we often say that teachers are ill-prepared. 
I don't think that we have leadership who prioritizes reading to the extent that it needs to be to actually create the opportunities for the resources for the teachers to be set up for success in the first place, which is why some of us have really started to shift our focus on the ecosystem and acknowledging the multiple layers above teachers because we often get into a shame and blame mentality. Parents feel this because we know that there's a genetic predisposition, so we carry this weight of knowing that the reason why my son struggles is because he got it from me, I got it from someone before me because we came in here with a predisposition to struggle. We can also blame teachers for being ill-prepared, not well aware, and then we can blame higher education for not having set them up for success in the first place, which we should do. And then what we also need to acknowledge, if all of those factors were in place, would we have well-running organizations, which are multi-million dollar businesses with a blank check given to them with no accountability for how it's used for its effectiveness, except for third grade outcomes in, in, in the United States. And I'm not calling for more accountability. I'm just saying it's a really odd system where we constantly shame and blame children, parents, and teachers, but we don't hold others accountable for that. And as a former child who struggled, I didn't like to be shamed. As a parent, I don't want to be shamed. And as a person who does consider myself trained to teach, because I am, I don't think that all the burden should fall on me as a teacher either. So I do think we need to widen our expanse about how we hold accountability and who's held accountable and what they need to do in the system to support us. And I think that's one of the obstacles to change. Because my lesson and takeaway from what you're just sharing is, is that leadership needs to be there to supervise, support, and make sure that what needs to happen is happening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, there's the terms like reading wars and, and the pendulum swing and everything associated with going from balanced literacy to structured literacy or the science of reading and the changes that need to happen in order for that to occur. Part of the issue that we're constantly fighting against is the higher ups that are currently in position are typically strongly entrenched in those balanced literacy whole language practices and they are in the position to control the professional development and the uh, the hiring of new staff and committee. And it can affect who's let in to provide professional development and who is hired into the, the district or into the schools based on their theoretical foundation. So that's true to some extent. But when we also look, at least in the United States, about different policies that have been put in place around that are similar to your Right to Read initiative in Ontario, up in Canada, some of that's taken care of. I mean, I'm working very closely with a handful of DOEs, and I do know that there is complete consistency. There is an understanding that this is the will of the masses. This has been legislatively put in place. This is the way that we're running things now. They're fully on board. So really... That has to be then communicated down to the leadership, and then the leadership needs to do a good job of, of leadership change, mm -hmm. leading through change, which is very hard to do. And they then have to then come in to roll, run the ship. So you're right, it could be. And I've also worked in settings over the last eight years since I kind of returned to academia and really invested in trying to do more um, partnerships with state DOEs. And I've seen exactly what you're talking about, that flex of personalities, those strong belief systems. But I can also say that I also work with very closely a handful of state DOEs in the United States right now, where that isn't the issue. But we still have, even when those are removed, 
you still have so many obstacles that you have to come in. The sheer mass of a massive initiative like we're running in one state right now, just the sheer number of how we have to do it, the time frame to do it, and the amount of training and then the supervision and support that has to come in. Those logistics are very um, daunting to think about when we're going to retrain 25,000 teachers in the state over the course of the next two years, for example. That's a big task, but that's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that retraining piece is huge because there are things that research has shown to be best practices for teaching reading and, you know, other topics like mathematics that were never in the teacher education programs of current teachers. Maybe if they've gotten their degree in the last few years, but our teachers that have been teaching for five, 10, 15, 20 years, the the jargon and the terminology and the processes weren't part of their learning pathway as a foundational teacher may not have been part of their pathway as a student when they were learning how to read mm -hmm. so we're having to introduce things from the get-go while they are still actively teaching in the classroom and have life outside of it so we're asking a lot i think we are so I, I want to hear that perspective. I acknowledge it wholeheartedly. Obviously, folks in higher education like myself can do a better job of making sure that what we now know is better represented and trained to teachers before they get out. I'll also share that there'll never be a time where we don't need in-service training. So I used to be, I used to hold appointments at a medical school and I used to train biomedical engineers and others to do neuroinvasive neuroimaging. I used to work with EMR physicians and we helped to develop um, sequences for Siemens for their new, um, at the time, what was their new scanner. So I was involved in a technical group that did that. That was all brand new stuff. That means that every single radiologist in that hospital setting and across the globe was going to be trained in new sequences that we were creating. It meant that there would be new technologies coming on board. We've subsequently moved past that as well. So ongoing professional development is part of any profession, and there will be shifts based off of technological advancements to any profession. And so the assumption that we will learn everything needed in undergraduate is a misnomer. Can we be better set up and prepared for that? Yes. But we can look at other professions and see that we shift and change and practices are modified and adjusted. So we will need a solid foundation. But the need for an ongoing in-service and professional development outside of undergraduate or even graduate level courses will not go away for any profession. So it should also be held that. So it's really going to be a balancing of both of those needs. And so we can hold higher ed accountable, but they're going to set them up. And that's also going to be the churn of different programmatic pieces coming in. So with different curriculum adoptions, there'll be a need for training, coaching, and supervision. There'll be a need to get your staff in your school setting ready to support that with high fidelity. That's never going to go away. So I'm only hesitant, and I know you weren't saying this, but sometimes when people point the finger at higher ed, it's to let the public education institutions off the hook. I think they're both on the hook and both are going to be necessary because teaching is a profession and we should elevate it to being respected as a profession. And so again, when I was doing technical development of brand new MR sequences with Siemens and the technical team across Harvard and UT Southwestern Medical School, we were putting new things in the world and radiologists were going to have to train on those new sequences. 
Of course. And that was that reality for them and they're professionals and they had to do it. Of course. And, and the thing to note in higher ed, I mean, there's typically uh, different programs for elementary school teachers and high school teachers, but you're given a span of grades. And so in your teacher education program, you're not going to necessarily be a kindergarten specialist with no. that general bachelor's degree. And there is no way for higher ed to give everything to their pre-service teachers for every single grade. That's just not plausible nope. and effective. And there are things that you are going to have to learn on the job and collect through doing. I mean, you can sit in an ivory tower listening to a talking bobblehead all you want about learning how to read phonological awareness and this sort of thing. But until you're actually in the classroom with the students in that process, mm -hmm, you're not right. going to have all the knowledge and, you know, working with, you know, you can learn about something, say like autism or ADHD or dyslexia or uh, down syndrome in the classroom. But until you have an individual in your classroom with that diversity, you're not going to really understand it. And the next student that you have with that narrow diversity is going to be completely different from the one your, your first student. So you, yes, you're going to have a foundational understanding, but the supports and needs of that students are going to be different. And you can't just say, okay, here's my uh, prepackaged program for a dyslexic student, and it's going to work for every other dyslexic student that I have. So one of the things that I've done with some of my collaborative work with state DOEs across the country, one in particular I'm thinking of, I helped them with some other content experts with thinking about their standards for their K through five curriculum. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about then the syllabi for their reading institution, their, their, their higher ed institutions about what foundational knowledge they want. And then they came up with profiles of ready to teach out of what that would look like and then to work with their educational cooperative centers across the state to then put in thoughtful continuing professional development and support to then go into those schools to on go and support that is more of a holistic approach in this state of thinking about what do we want to see in our courses of study in our undergraduate institutions they can really control those states but they can the state funded ones they can also control the private ones through licensure so if they couldn't pass a reading, a, a foundational knowledge test of reading and the science of reading, then they weren't going to be licensed K through five in the state, for example. There's a few states like this in um, the United States. I'm working closely with one about this holistic approach. Then you also come up with here is descriptively what your candidates should look like to be ready to go to be effective classroom teachers at this point in their career. And then to work with their educational cooperative centers to say, what kind of ongoing support should we have available to our school leads so that they can have thoughtful ways of coming in and addressing that. So that really is more of a holistic picture. And then within that, um, I'm not working with this state, but I know that the Florida Center for Reading Research is, as well as the University of Florida and their Literacy Institute, but coming up with kind of really good ways of how you support leadership and having logic models in place and how you're going to create a framework for how you create change, what your change is going to be, the drivers of that change, and how you evaluate if adults are coming in and actually performing what you need them to do to get that done. So that's another state, Florida that's working with two different kind of hubs as far as that to support them with this initiative statewide, really focusing in on this kind of right to read era of kind of a K through two, K through three 
Um, and there's another few pieces that are really interesting about what Florida is trying to do right now. But um, those pieces are all needed. And that last piece that I said about the behavioral indicators of what adults are doing, because all of our data are at what children are doing. And we don't actually gather, collect, store, and learn from adult indicators of them doing their jobs. We just hold them accountable for their student performance, which always irritates the teachers. And I would think that they should be less irritated if we hold them accountable for doing what we expect them to do. We show them how to do. And if they do it, just like we expect our kids, we're going to teach you what you need to know. We're going to test you to see if we're learning what you're learning. And that's transferring to showing that you're expanding beyond that for us. We should do that for our adults too. And that's really to support them, just like we would support our students with saying, you're not quite getting where we need you to go. So we're going to come in with a more support. So for our educators, and I always talk about this of sometimes it's a conversation around how do we better support you? And then sometimes there's non-compliance and it's an HR issue, but we can't document that until we actually track and understand human behavior and monitor that too, in addition to our student behavior. Okay. Well, let's take a moment and think about those different institutions in the ecosystem. So if we're looking at higher education, we have the what uh, potential teacher candidate or pre-service teacher has going into the program. Mm -hmm. We have what they're learning in the program, what they need to show to get out of the program. Correct and what they can do afterwards for say a master's or a specialization degree. That's right. So typically within departments of education, there are sub departments. So you have a math, math ed, a language literacy and education, a special ed and these sort of things. And in my experience, there's not always the best communication between the departments of what best practices are and how to teach them. But we also need to think about those requirements. So when we're going in to a, a teacher education program as an applicant, what are the requirements needed? Now in British Columbia and uh, various provinces in Canada, there's a set list of courses that you need to have completed to be into the post-baccalaureate program. I find these to be fairly general and non-specific, and that's great. We need to have teachers with a variety of backgrounds, but any two English courses are not gonna give a prospective pre-service teacher the background on teaching reading. And I feel that getting that background is really important before they go into their teacher education program because there's only so much that you can cover in that year-long or potentially two-year-long program. Yeah, I would agree with that. So again, the example I was giving of the one state that I'm working really closely with, they're doing syllabi review, and then the Barksdale group out of Mississippi, Kelly Butler's group, has historically also gone in after those syllabi review and actually observed and looked at all the the textbook, the curriculum that are being taught, and then looking at the teaching that the professors are doing. There's there's multiple levels. So Kelly Butler out of Mississippi and Barksdale have done an even further, um, more refined look at what's happening. Because you're right, we have to make sure that we maximize those courses. And in the States, it's often going to be an elementary education degree. 
which will then get you licensure to teach in a K through five or even a pre-K to five setting. And that's true for many other states across the U.S. at least. And then you might get a secondary degree, and then that's going to have different requirements. So um, the, the need to make sure that those foundational literacy skills are going to be part of what those, those classes are. And historically, that's not been what professors in those classes have been teaching their students, unfortunately. So I don't want to speak or make subjections about what it is, but um, there's a group here in the U.S. that does syllabi review as far as the quality of the reading instruction across the, the undergraduate degrees as well. And we normally don't see great results. We're doing it. That group is doing another evaluation across the country and Linda Diamond's leading up that effort right now. So we've got indicators of kind of these issues from a couple different ways of done. Department of Eds have been doing this kind of work. Barksdale has been doing this with a few states. And then there's a national organization here that does this at a larger kind of um, landscape analysis way as well. So in the United States, we've been trying to track this. Um, and we've seen some gains over the past few years as far as more of what you would want to see in those classes, especially for those elementary education um, degrees kind of coming online, but not enough that we would want to see the real change to set the teachers up for success with running these new initiatives across the United States of a real push to the science of reading type of work with the curriculum. Yes. And, you know, one thing to think about is elevating being a teacher to that higher professional standards. Correct. If you go into a pre-med program, you're going to have students that are taking, you know, a basic intro chem course, an intro bio course, anatomy course, and that's going to be standard. They're going to be using the same textbooks or a, you know, a selection of textbooks that cover the same information. And once they've done their first year bio course, everybody's expected to have that same knowledge. And so when you go into your, your medical degree, um, you're going to have a, a standard knowledge and we have the MCAT for that, or in uh, law, we have the uh, LSATs. And these are tests that have been created to make sure that the candidates applying for the programs have the prerequisite knowledges. I would love to see that for education. So there's a little bit of a, you're right about that. So, but that would be for the graduate studies, but a lot of our folks are just going to come out with that undergraduate degree and be prepared to be licensed and teach. Mm -hmm. And at least in the States, what we do is, is that people often will get a pay bump when they get a master's. So yeah. that pushed and higher eds turned into a business, unfortunately. So that created a lot of five-year programs, which churned through and got people out with their BA, BS um, and their MA or their MS, depending upon what they were. And mm -hmm. it wasn't really focusing necessarily what the content might've been in that master's degree program, which is an unfortunate thing that kind of a market economy can do to what happens. Um, so there's a little, so I hear what you're saying, but I would suggest that I want to back up there. Um, and I don't, I don't want to point too many fingers here, but what I have seen having been a professor at multiple institutions of higher ed, mm -hmm. um, through my career is, is that it would make sense for an elementary ed teacher to take a linguistics course. But yes. what might happen is an education professor might create a linguistics course opposed to a linguistics person actually teaching the course. What a college would not do is have a pre-med program that would have 
I don't know who the professors would be, create their own courses independent of the bio courses in the biology department being taught by PhDs in biology, the chemistry department teaching the chemistry courses, the mathematic professors teaching the math courses. In education, we have this weird way of creating courses that are independent from their primary disciplines that education professors teach. And just, I have a bias here. I would prefer that a statistician who's trained in advanced math and statisticians be the stats teacher. Um, so I prefer that. I prefer if you're going to take neuroscience and not be an educational neuroscience class taught by somebody who has a PhD or an EDD and hasn't done any neuroscience, I'd rather have a neuroscientist teach the neuroscience class. So I understand that there's probably a benefit of contextualizing the content knowledge, but allow the neuroscientist to come in and contextualize that content knowledge and do that translational work for you if you want to take your metaphor. So that's me being true to your metaphor. And your mm -hmm. metaphor, it would be a biologist teaching biology. It would be a mathematician teaching mathematics. It would be a statistician teaching statistics. It would not be an education professor with an EDD teaching those courses. Now, there will be some people that hold an EDD who are qualified to teach those things. I'm not saying that that's the case, but there is a tradition, at least in the United States institutions and the ones that I've worked at with colleges of education, pilling out and creating their own courses. And that is in a difference. I'm not going to judge it. It's different than um, the way that pre-med programs run, because again, um, I would teach the psych classes. I could teach neuropsychology. I would not be the one that teaches biology or chemistry. I would not, I would not go and read a textbook and think that I could teach you college level biology. But I could teach you neuropsychology because I, I have that degree in a, at an advanced level and I've done that research and I could teach you statistics because I'm a psychometrician and I'm a statistician. I could do those things. I'm qualified to do those things, but I would not be qualified to teach um, other things. I could teach reading, although I'm not licensed in the state of Tennessee, so I can't teach at an undergraduate level, although I know how to teach reading and I've taught kids how to read, but not in the public school setting. So in colleges of education, they have an interesting double standard when it comes who gets to teach classes. So I cannot teach undergraduate courses because I'm not a licensed educator. And I think that's fine. I've never taught in a public school. And I think that that should be something that you bring to the equation. Well, then I, I just respectfully ask that we not have education departments coming up with neuroscience classes not taught by neuroscientists, for example. Yeah, of course. And, you know, one thing that's kind of going out of the ecosystem, but you mentioned, you know, having one degree, reading a textbook and then teaching on another topic. That's where we see a, a lot of the individuals who were deeply rooted in balanced literacy uh, and whole language saying, okay, I, I've spent a year, I've read a book, I can now tell you about structured literacy and the science of reading, and then promoting themselves as experts in that field. And that's where I'm seeing a lot of problems and conflict. Yeah, and that's interesting because I would, I would say that that's common and that's mm -hmm. not to be dissuaded upon, but I would go back to the, me holding myself accountable. Again, I'm not qualified at my institution to teach an undergraduate education class. So in elementary ed, I can teach the advanced specialty classes at the, at the graduate level. I'm allowed to do that and us to maintain our accreditation um, and to, to do those things. But the rationale is, is that I don't have the real world experience of working in those public schools. So mm -hmm. if you retrain without the practical experience of teaching the content, then the logic that keeps me from teaching an undergraduate course is a double standard. Mm -hmm. Tim Odegaard should be able to teach an undergraduate literacy course at my institution. 
if we're going to have people retrain without going through and practically having to go into the classroom and teach a well-studied, empirically validated, rigorous program that comprehensively teaches what we need to teach in the foundational reading skills. Otherwise, why am I not allowed to teach at the undergraduate level for my university to keep accreditation? We're prioritizing potentially the wrong types of expertise and experience in that setting. So that's just me saying that, again, no judgment here. It's just that's a clear double standard because I have taught children how to read. I have taught children how to read in large groups and classroom settings. I'm just not licensed to do that in a public school K through five. So I cannot teach those classes at the undergraduate level K through five. But I've actually taught a science of reading curriculum, and I've actually supervised and done coaching in those things. I have real world experience of how you make that work in real reading schools. So I would hope that we would have people that would do that. That isn't a standard that has to be held, but it's often one that I valued. When I was an undergraduate, the clinical site professor at my small liberal arts college kept a private practice to stay relevant on the changes that were coming based off the research that was being done, and his best practices shifted in how you do that. And then college professors at the graduate school level in clinical psychology also are actively modeling and performing practice for their students as part of the rigorous practicum experience. Medical doctors are still going into and practicing to keep their licensure. And they're also the professors that will train in a medical school. So I do think that we have models to look at as far as what might be needed there. So I'm not going to be judgmental here. I actually want to see lots of people. I just met somebody when I was down in Mississippi last week who came up and was asking me, I was saying that there's been some misinformation around the science of reading. And she says, who's saying? And I said, I am. I've gotten on stage before and not know what I was talking about. And I had to come back and re-apologize. I mean, we do it all the time. It's not something that we're, we're not infallible. We all do that. And I said, what's really important is, is that I gave you a list of credible sources from the Institute of Educational Sciences, from different clearinghouses, from different centers that are validated, reliable. They're going to be good sources of information. So opposed to let's pointing fingers about who's spreading misinformation, let's say who's growing and learning and how can we point people to the really good practice guides and sources that are based off of a meta-analytic approach to find out what works and let's adopt those. So I'm always welcome to help support, and I want to create pathways for college existing professors to do better now that we're in a moment of knowing better. Um, and I think that part of that is then we have to kind of get their sleeves dirty, and I think they should really try to do this work with their students if they want to really understand it, to your point, basically. I think that would be needed, but it's not what they have to do. But I'd like to see them do that. Of course. Now, let's talk about like the meat of the programs, right? It's, it's courses. And for a course, you need a syllabi. And you also typically have a textbook or, or journal articles that you're reading to impart the knowledge. How long, in your experience, does it take to create a course from scratch? And the second part would be, how long does it take to write a textbook and get it edited and published? Like, this is one thing that I think is lost in this conversation and how long it takes to create, create the quality material to use to teach. Oh, that's just, that's like, a, that's like a gut punch right there. There's an entire state waiting for me to finish a bloody course right now with my center. So it takes a long time. It takes resources. 
And in today's age of online and high flex, a hybrid flex kind of model of teaching with us creating and producing, um, like you're seeing me in my center's um, video production studio right now. So I have professional lighting up. I've got nice mics here. I've got a background back there. I've got my hair in a ponytail, sorry. Um, I've got all this stuff happening um, for a reason. And it takes us a long time to create these types of high quality materials. Um, a good quality textbook is really good. Um, also then it also takes time to curate really good topical, reliable, accessible materials to come in there. It takes the time to create assessments to, to track them along the way, um, output tests to do all this. So it's really, it's a, it's, it's a lot of labor to do this well from scratch. Um, and I would say that because there's practical requirements of this and it's apply, it's a, it's an applied field education is, um, it's not just content knowledge. And so just a overview of the knowledge is insufficient. You also have to bring in lots of student vignettes, lots of opportunities for them to explore what they would do, lots of activities for them to develop aspects of a lesson. That all takes time to develop. Time that my team has been doing for the past five or six months with one state DOE to create um, an elementary ed course on the science of reading, um, which we're going to be launched, the state will be launching here in the next week or two. So I can tell you from experience being knee deep, just coming out of having edited, I'm going to leave this and spend all night doing audio filtering of some of the videos because there's clicks and mouse clicks and stuff that I have to get out of there. It's a lot of work, thousands, thousands of hours of work and to do this. So that's the answer to your first question. Lots and lots of work. When it's an applied field, I feel that it really is on us as educators to really put the applied focus on there and not just leave it at the superficial knowledge level and also not leave it at the superficial level, but to dig a little bit deeper, which was actually a real high compliment I got from a webinar I did last week or the week before. It was last week. Wow, this has been a lot of work. Um, that they they were complimenting me because I went a little bit deeper than a lot of just a lot of other people will do in a webinar of just superficially hitting these high points, but really taking the audience on a little bit of a journey to get a little bit into the weeds and, and helping them do that. So I think that that's the work that has to be done. You asked about a textbook. Before we get there, I just want to say that I have my own online courses and I can spend six hours in pre-production just for a 20 minute video. Correct. Getting the resources and the slides and the scripting because yeah. yes, I can do it ad lib and, you know, off the cuff, but it's so much better if it's scripted. Yep. And then I make sure that every point is in the logical order that I want it. So I don't think everyone understands that. And then there's the post-production side that you were talking about. Yeah. And that, so now that we've come into this new world and we can't go back to a different world is that was something that a lot of my really close friends and colleagues were starting to have to kvetch about behind the scenes was all these virtual conferences and webinars that would expect us to come in with these polished PowerPoints we're coming in with these expectations, but when you put the video layer on top of all of that and some of these other elements, we really didn't have a good handle. And now we are eyes wide open to knowing how much additional time it takes. So um, that's required us to rethink, one, if we'll accept requests to do different things um, because of the obligations, two, if we're asked to price out what it's gonna cost, um, 
I cannot seem to ever really estimate the total number of hours. I'm currently over budget on this current state project by a hefty amount because of the extra hours it's taking to do all this work, um, for example, and I'm having to find cost savings behind other doors to try to you know, come out in the black opposed to the red. Um, so I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I again, I've, I've really five or six really close colleagues that everybody would know their names and know who they are in the science of reading. We are unhappy about a lot of things. And a lot of it is the additional work that just was not accounted for. So I had one person once say to me, I'm tired of hearing about the videos. And I'm like, well, you should make a few of the darn things because they're really darn hard to make. I'm the producer on all this content. And we're going to get past this one little rumble and be friends and colleagues on the other side of this. But that wasn't a very conscientious statement to make in my face right now, because I'm pretty tired, worn out, over budget, and not happy about the state of affairs. And what are we still talking about? Videos. Because you're right, in this world of all of this stuff going online and high flex and online courses, this is a big consideration. Yeah, of course. Anyway, I'm kvetching, and this isn't the point that your listeners want to hear. We don't want to hear Tim Odegaard piss and moan about how hard it is. I mean... <laughs> Of course, but then it comes to writing textbooks, even just like a chapter in a textbook, the amount of effort, getting the resources, getting the editing, getting the citations, everything formatted. Yeah, that's why I've not written one yet. <laughs> I've been asked so many times. I refuse to write one yet. So um, there's other things for me to do with my time. And um, but no, I, I know darn good and well from the outside looking in, in the few book chapters I've written, how much work it is. And those book chapters were really still just kind of knowledge filled type of stuff. Us academics, when we're asked to write book chapters are not textbook chapters. And an educational textbook chapter is gonna to have to have student vignettes. It's gonna to have to have activities that are instructionally based. It's gonna to have to have things. We did create a facilitator guide for this and that was a pain in the tush as well. And that's the closest thing that I've gotten to writing an educational textbook. Again, I've been asked, and is this at this point, I've not had anybody convince me that that this would be something that I should do. So if there's a publisher out there that wants to convince me, good luck, but um, I'm, I'm, I will do one eventually, but it's not right now. Um, oh, but it, it takes time. It takes effort. And it's not like you write it in a week. It's no. published or edited the next week and then it's on the bookstore. Like, yes, you have the ability to self-publish. But then there's the quality control and the peer review process that doesn't happen. And again, that's where we're seeing a lot of people who consider themselves an expert in the field and to have the knowledge. But in reality, do they really? But they've gone out and self-published a couple books. So, of course, they must be, right? Yeah, I, I'm going to be a little generous here, though. I do think that more times than not, people do model the behavior of saying where they have knowledge and when they don't have knowledge. I think that a good shift would be to have things have more practical. I mean, education is an applied field. It's like engineering. You know, you've got to learn how to build the bloody bridge. You just can't have it be a textbook example of building a bridge. If all of our engineers walked out and just got to go and take the lead responsibility of building a bridge, we'd, we'd have a lot more fatalities in the world. Mm -hmm. So in these applied fields, it's really important to have the applied examples, implementation, uh, implications, as well as supervised experiences to go out and baby step your way to taking the lead on stuff. So I think textbook authors in general understand their role about what they're doing and the gap they're filling. So I think it is on creating more expansive options and like 
accompany workbooks, facilitator guides, and other things that would support that. And then also having a robust program of study, as we were talking about earlier, to wrap in practicum-based practical experiences and some type of a real um, partnership with, let's say, a local educational school with a, C with a college of education so that they're actually going into the field as a lab course and there's a close relationship. And those professors are working closely with the faculty. So these are new models emerging, at least in the States, about how to do some of this training in real partnership with local agencies. And with that type of a model in place, we could actually have um, some insights and some wins, I think, because you're now showing the interweaving of the ecosystem and drawing the lines between them and the communication across them. Yeah. If that helps. I mean, I don't want to write a textbook anytime soon unless something makes <laughs> me a great deal. Well, I know, you know, some of the big names who've been writing, you know, it's taken years to get a book ready for publication, just with all the revisions and tweaking the, the language. So it's just perfect. So that it's ready for publication, because as soon as it's published, it's open for criticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're never perfect. I actually, my, my, um, my, my, my advisor for my undergraduate study in psychology at the time had the most widely, he was a psych, he was a statistician research methodologist, and he had the most widely adopted undergraduate stats textbook that he had written. And he would, he would, he would often give us as we were going through it a dollar for anybody that found a typographical error because they're still in there. I mean, you can yeah. copy it to your day's all day long, but published textbooks still have errors in the footnotes, still have errors in the references, they still have errors. So you can find those. And that's just a funny example I often give. And I was his TA for his research methods class my last year in college. And um, he was a good mentor to me. And I remember that. And that was a lesson I took away from it. And he actually made that point as errors happen. And we have to put procedures and processes to check in to catch them. And even when we do that, you're still going to have an occasional one slip to the cracks. Of course. Yeah. And I, I've had the same thing with uh, you know, being in classes where I've had the professor have written the textbook and I'm like, look, you know, let me know. You'll get an extra percent. You got yep. a dollar. We got an extra percent on our grade. Um, it all depends. So all perfection our... may be the goal, but it's 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 not going to be achieved. <laughs> exactly. Maybe in a picture book. Maybe in a picture book. Um, all right. So you've got the courses and then it's trying to figure out when the students have captured enough and what areas need to be included in that first education degree to qualify them sure. for becoming a teacher, because it's not just teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic. There are so right. many other factors that need to be included and have equal importance in deciding what is enough to have them so they can hit the ground running. So many teachers who exit their teacher education program feel like they know barely anything. And the most useful parts of their school program was actually during the practicum in the classroom. Yep. And I think we need to be able to transform the teacher education programs so that they don't feel like that. Yeah, I think what you're highlighting is something I wrote down earlier and I'm going to come back to, which is we need more robust standards linked into the disciplinary areas that let's say a degree should be preparing you to teach. So I know that, and that has to be developed with 
lots of different voices in the room to create those standards and then those can come up that's why i was highlighting that one doe that that was revising their standards also then incorporating that work into preparing what their what the courses for teacher prep should be to get them out to be licensed what is our exit exam for showing that they've got some of the knowledge the knowledge that we need them to have at least at this level and how do we then support them moving forward because you have to you have to close that net we often point at one thing i've heard a lot of teacher 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 blaming or then we'll like some people will blame higher ed higher ed higher ed and then nobody ever blames or looks at the leaders which obviously the captain is responsible for the ship so i come from a military family so that's my perspective and so i don't hold leaders accountable because i don't have respect for them i hold them accountable because i have immense respect for leadership and leaders take accountability for what is wrong on their watch well and that's again where we need to in my opinion, hold higher ed accountable because at least in Canada, to become a principal or a vice principal, you need to do additional training. And it's in that additional training that I feel we need to have the foundation for making sure that they can be that leader, that captain, to provide the support and learning environment. They're not just sitting in their office all day, twiddling their thumbs and making sure kids follow the rules. They should be an active participant, you know, going into the classrooms, helping with the progress monitoring. A big thing is doing screening measures with students and progress monitoring. Well, in my opinion, the principal and the vice principal should be able to go through the data in every classroom and say, yes, you know, this is how we can help support you. This is a training right. you need. That's it's right. not just like, oh, that's great. That's pretty. I like the colors. I personally hold that same opinion. That's my bias. And that's how I, I've created myself, which is good and bad. It's not the only way to go about doing things. It's not the only form of leadership. But I personally hold a model, which I can step in and do pretty much anything that my staff can do. They can always do it a little bit better than I can, but I could fill in. I could go back to the end of this table and I can step in and do the lesson that was just given to two students here in a in an intensive dyslexia specific intervention. I can do that work. I can go into back in my center and I could administer psychoeducational battery of tests. I could score them. I could interpret them. And I could then give you recommendations on what we should do instructionally. I can walk into the research lab and I can pull open R and I can run all the statistical analyses. I can pull open SciScope, which is an old school program. I can pull up E prime super lab and I can program that up and I can interface with my EEG system or an MRI system. I personally am of the view that I should be able to walk in and do a lot of and lead through that. And then when I can't, I listen to hold space and I learn from, and I try to elevate my understanding from the expertise of the people around me. Um, I've never taught high school. I teach college. So that's a missing gap in mind. So I listen to my secondary um, educator here immensely when it comes to that type of stuff. And I value her. I am not as proficient at a lot of the teacher talk and the teacher stuff. So I lean on my staff when it comes to that. I'm not a school psychologist and as adept at knowing all those procedures and processes. So I lean heavily on my school psych. So I have competencies around what their expertise is, but I also am not as good as them. So I learn from and build off of their expertise to increase how I can lead. That's just my own personal bias. So I agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, and when I'm in a school, I can walk into a data room, look at the charts on the wall, and I can get into and have a conversation with those teachers. Um, and I'm part of a team then when I do that. So I personally have a bias to think that that's how we should lead. It's not the only form of leadership. 
No, of course not. And it's knowing your Reese's and and knowing your strengths and weaknesses and where to point teachers and say, you know what, that's not my field of expertise, but this person is, so give them a call and they can help you. That's right. I think so. I think it's being able to network, but I, I often, this is going to be judgmental, but I think bad leadership is defaulting and saying, that's not my job. Again, that's what I was really highlighting is, is the captain goes down with the ship for a reason. And I don't think that a leader ever gets to say at the end of the day that that's not my job if it's on my watch. So if there's a job that needs to be done, I do it for my center or the teams that I work with. And I don't have the same level of respect for leaders who can't follow suit on that one. Because I do think that we ultimately should be able to fill in and get the job done. And that might mean that I get the people in with the right qualifications and listen to them, but I at least need to have enough awareness to know that that is a need on my team. And understanding, that comes from understanding, and it takes knowledge to have understanding. It takes background knowledge. Yes, of course. Now, we've focused a lot on higher ed, but I want to talk about, you know, on-the-job professional development, because that is something that all teachers need any professional needs. Um, What do you think we can do to bring professional development to the next level? Uh, Make it more practical, showing real implications and real instruction. So unfortunately, also contextualize it within the local context, procedures, policies, and practices. So One of the things that I think is a disconnect that we could learn from the psychological science literature is, is that transfer is hard. And, and the farther we are from concretely, what has to happen in your local context, the harder it is for people to make connections and transfer learning. This is just basic aspects of psychological science and human nature. So I think that we have to really work hard to really make it instantiated in actual practice to take a declarative knowledge about what, let's say, text structure is, but then take it into, here's example, different examples of text structure. Here's different examples of how we teach text structure. Here's you going in and working to actually develop a lesson, deliver a lesson on text structure. Here's your feedback on how you did on that. Let's see improvement next time. I think we have to go through these levels of learning. And also it has to be contextualized within what we're doing. So What has historically happened in the U.S. for a very long time is consultants are brought in with their set pieces, which are always the same. And no matter what school they go into, they'll always be the same or the training will always be the same. It's never customized to the local context, to what they're doing in their their site. One of the reasons why this course that we're developing is taking so long is, is that we're developing it to be bespoke for the needs and the current legislative policies and practices in the state that we're working with. So we were picked because we were willing to do that customization and create bespoke trainings. And it wasn't going to be a one size fits all approach to this. Um, We'll be criticized and held accountable. And I hope we are, and we'll learn from this and we're not going to be perfect, but I think it's an interesting approach to doing this. There's lots of things that are out there that are one size fits all, which definitely meet a need, but they meet a need within the context of understanding that they have to be supplemented. Just like in a, core curriculum that doesn't have certain aspects of literacy taught, you have to supplement them. So if you're just an overarching high level knowledge piece, we have to supplement you more than just a PLC. We got to supplement you with really integrating and have facilitators and coaches going into schools and really showing how you translate that into practice. 
that would be probably a gold standard type of a model um, that we would want to see. And then we need more research looking at these different implementation models of professional development to see which ones are most effective. Very hard research to do for lots of reasons, very intensive research to do, very expensive research to do, really hard. And we don't have all the things I think we need right now from an instrumentation standpoint to measure outcomes on those different levels. So I think that's been one of the things as I've talked to some of my senior mentors about what it's going to take to bring this research to this as well. It's going to take us developing some adult indicators of performance and behavior and some monitoring systems to track that. So I think there's some innovations happen that will benefit us as researchers start to, as they already are, shifting into publicly funded aspects of doing more of this work. That's on the horizon. Definitely. So okay. there is always that strive for improving. And we'll, I guess we'll have to talk again sometime to talk about some of those other ecosystems. But thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Odegaard. I've really yeah, enjoyed thank the you conversation. Me. Thank you, Dr. Garford. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs>